You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, April 13th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, where were you on April 13th, 1970? I was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. I was probably in school. What time of day was it? <laughs> uh, well, in 1970, Apollo 13, mission to the moon, suffered a pretty bad uh, fault. Oh, yeah, <laughs> fault I remember that. I system. saw that in that movie. It's the one where Tom Hanks lands on that island and has to make friends. <laughs> oh, with that's right. Uh, yeah, his co-pilot was Wilson or something. Um, right. Right. So wait a minute, Evan. It was April the 13th, and it was Apollo 13, and you're telling me that's all a coincidence? Oh, I didn't say that. Did your word coincidence pass my lips? Well, what are you saying? 13 gets a bad rap. Well, what I'm saying is that it was, you know, 30 years ago <laughs> that when, the, when this happened. It was, it was 40 the, the years most, ago. 40, yeah. The most, sorry. It, I'm saying Stop trying was, to yes, shave My math is off. good tonight. I'm saying it was 40 years ago when uh, NASA's, quote, successful failure, end quote, occurred, you know, with the Apollo 13 uh, launched to the moon. And this was the date in which the electrical system failed on one of the oxygen tanks on the ship and it caused a rupture, which uh, caused big old problems up there. And uh, they almost died. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. was pretty, it was pretty bad for a long time. And one little it, uh, glitch. One Houston, little glitch. we have a problem. And and you know and of course we we should know that that's not exactly what was said. The yeah, what is, wording is yeah, what is it? Said play it, Sam. Wait, no. Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a that problem. We, we've had a problem. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't but, flow as nicely. Yeah, you, Houston, exactly. we, we have a problem is much more poetic. Yes, yes, and that's what our pop <laughs> culture has adapted as the uh, you know phrase from that occasion in history, and it's become you know yeah. It's like billions and billions or top of the world, ma, <laughs> right? They, things that right, were never I, said that are people's most famous quotes. But the real question is, was it one small step for man or one small step for a man? That, that's been conclusively answered, I thought. We talked about We it. talked about that a couple of years ago. In which yeah, don't you listen to this to podcast, Steve? Re resolve some <laughs> of the garble. <laughs> well, he, he But the he controversy lives on. Up. He didn't yeah, Absolutely. Up. Yeah. So Apollo thirteen, yes, but they made it. They all made it back alive. They did. Oh, Successful thanks failure. for ruining it. I never got around to see. Never mind reality. You blew. The Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> God, imagine being you know, in space they, for six days and having no idea if you're going to. My, you know. my wife and I are watching the miniseries The Pacific, and she uh -huh. keeps saying, "Don't tell me how it turns out." <laughs> 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 Just kidding. And we're talking about forty-year-old technology. At the, you know, we're, I mean, think about where we are today. Think but Evan, it was space-age technology. Ago. I understand that. <laughs> yes, it was, the cut, it was cutting edge at the time. But man, I mean, yeah. I think could barely probably power a watch these days, let alone. Uh, oh, the computing power they had, I know, was nothing. Guys, they were they were successfully sending people to another celestial body on incredibly yeah you know, low-rate technology, and they, you know. 
From the moon, we're going to go to Mars. There is new evidence that supports the notion that there may be flowing water on Mars. Now, we all know that there's water frozen under the surface of Mars, but the question is, does water ever bubble to the surface or you know, blow out of uh, subsurface collections and flow over the surface of Mars? Because of the extremely low atmospheric tension, any water on the surface of Mars would probably evaporate very quickly. Uh, but it may hang around, theoretically, long enough to flow in rivulets down a slope, for example, and leave behind the telltale sign that it was there. Well, now we have a number of you know, probes around Mars that can take uh, high-definition images, specifically the high-rise. Now, Phil Plate reports on bad astronomy, and of course NASA reports directly, that a recent high-rise image shows what looks like recent rivulets flowing down a hillside on Mars. Now, this can be caused by evaporating carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide freezes in the Martian winter, and then it sublimates in, when, it gets, when it gets warm. It turns directly into a gas, and that releases some of the material, the sand and dirt that was frozen in it, and that can break away and you can have these little avalanches flowing down hillsides and that can cause these kind of structures. But as Phil notes, there are some features to this which are interesting. Rather than fanning out like an avalanche of sand or rock would, it tends to stay these rivulets in discrete channels without fanning out. So that is suggestive of something more like a flowing liquid than an avalanche of solid particles. In any way, just very quickly, this is a new little bit of evidence that, that there may actually be water under the surface of Mars that occasionally can break through and flow long enough to form these features before, before the water evaporates. We still haven't caught it in the act. I mean, that would be... But the other, yeah, the other important thing, though, Steve, is that, th that these aren't ancient, ancient structures at all. I mean, they've, they've seen these rivulets, that you, as you call them, these little channels uh, down the sides of dunes that that were different than they were, you know, weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So so this is clearly happening oh, yeah. now. It's not something that happened in the past. Uh, There's no only. question about that. These are recent. These are not ancient structures. These are not ancient right. riverbeds on Mars, which you've also seen. This is something that's recent. The, the only question is, what is it that's flowing down these hillsides? And, you know, we're trying to infer from the structure, and it's at least suggested that it may be water, but it's not definitive. But that's where we are. But the other cool thing is that HiRISE is taking some awesomely high-def pictures of the surface of Mars. Evan, tell us about bioprinting. Well, this story came out last week uh, that uh, researchers at Wake Forest University have developed a uh, device that will spray skin cells directly onto burns, uh, which will protect and heal their wounds. Uh, this is an alternative to skin grafts, you know, which uh, are the old way of doing things. But now they have this Well, still the, it's still the current way, I wouldn't say. Yeah, it's quite not quite the old way yet. Not quite the old way. You're yeah. right, Steve. They've, they've only Soon to be the old way. Soon to be, I think so. <laughs> Looks very promising. I mean, they've, sure. uh, they've, they've uh, experimented on mice, uh, successful tests on mice, and they're uh, applying for their next level of tests with the FDA to go ahead to... Uh, well, they're going to do pigs next and limited human cases, like on human feet and so forth. So, here, so here's how it essentially works. Uh, they take dissolved human skin cells from pieces of skin, 
and they purified the various cell types, such as fibroblasts and keratinocytes, the skin surface cells, and also the connective, uh, the underlying connective tissue. Yeah, so the of, fibroblasts, like the skin. underlying connective tissue, and the keratinocytes are the surface hard cells. So it's the, basically the two layers. You have the bottom layer that will stick to the burned surface, if, if mm-hmm. you will, and then the, the more protective layer on top of that. Would you say it's almost, I don't know, it's like a layer of gauze or something, some sort of structure, uh, you know, right for the... Yeah, it's, for the cells to you know latch onto. Yeah, and the the good thing about this is that uh, with the big thing with burn victims is that especially with with third degree burns is they lose a tremendous amount of fluid through the skin and uh, they get infections. So you have to do something right away, and that's why skin grafts are done quickly to essentially to prevent infections. Mm-hmm. Skin grafts are they're they're quick, which is which is an advantage, but they don't give a good cosmetic effect. Yeah. You, you would prefer... Lots of scarring. Yeah, you'd prefer yeah. the skin to sort of grow back on its own, but there just isn't time for that to happen. So what they did, Steve, is they took these pieces of skin and they put them in what they're calling a nutritious, solu- a nutritious solution. I'm not exactly sure what that, uh, what that is. It's a concoction of some sort. And then they put the solution into, effectively, an office inkjet printer, right? And mm-hmm. they actually have uh, some video of it on the internet. You can look it up at Wake Forest's uh, website and it literally it's a printer you know they're <laughs> going back board you know that classic inkjet noise and everything is is there and there they are making you know making uh, skin grafts out of it they apply a layer of the fibroblast first and then a layer of the keratinocytes and that's it and mm-hmm. by 3 weeks these wounds on the mice that they were experimenting with they would be completely closed whereas if they were left if the mice were just left to heal on their own it would take almost twice as long Mm-hmm. And Steve, like you were saying, is the point is you know get the skin on fast yeah. because infection will uh, will will set in and, right. and you know I wish I read I read a few of these articles on this topic. I wish they went into more detail. They they mentioned the keratinocytes and the fibroblasts, but they said that among other cells. So it makes me think, all right, what other cells are they throwing in there? Because there's other important cells in the epidermis. For example, there's Merkel cells, which are which help with touch. There's the Langerhans cells, which help uh, with, the, with an immune response. So I wonder if they're, you know, what kind of skin are you going to have at, when this is all said and done? Maybe, you know, your sense of touch will be inhibited a bit, or maybe your immune reactions won't be as good with this. I wonder, can you do deeper burns? Can they use this method to replace the dermis as well? It's really just a Band-Aid. This is definitely an improvement. It's a really good Band-Aid, though. Yeah, It's a really good Band-Aid, and the st- I love the whole stem cell approach. I wish they went into more detail about yeah, that I'm, as I'm well. Not, I, the, the article's ambiguous about the stem cells. It yeah. says probably because immature ce- cells called stem cells were mixed in with the sprayed cells. But does that mean that they mixed the cells in, and that's probably why this happened? Or there probably right. were stem cells there just in the mix? Because, you know, they're just taking... The, the the donor skin and then just you know dissolving it and then growing whatever was in there and they're saying there's probably some stem cells mixed in there but I do it was a little bit ambiguous mm-hmm. so I think it's just you know there's different kinds of cells in there they survive they they grow hopefully uh, they incorporate into the surrounding skin uh, and the question is, is is this going to allow the hosts fibroblasts and stem cells to to replace some of the missing skin eventually. What's the end result going to be? Um, so I think this is a good step. If, if nothing else, it's a really good Band-Aid. You know, whether or not this will lead to some skin regeneration, 
is unclear, and it may take some, some, a lot of tweaking before we get to that point. Uh, there was a recent report by the National Science Board. Now, the National Science Board oversees the National Science Foundation, which is the foundation in the U.S. whereby the federal government supports science education and the science, public understanding of science. And every two years they do their science and engineering indicators, basically reporting on what Americans think about science, how much science do Americans understand, how many people are going into science and engineering higher education. You know, how's the, how is America doing in all ways with regard to science and engineering beliefs, knowledge, and education? The 2010 report has caused a bit of a controversy. Have you guys heard about this? Nope. Uh, yes. <laughs> Rebecca, you're getting your London news. Uh, so what happened was that for, for the first time, they decided to expunge from the report any mention of evolution or the Big Bang. What do sponges what? have to do with this? <laughs> now, they, they collected the data, and they actually wrote a very reasonable section, but then it was removed from the final report. Cherry-picking? Well, I don't know. I have not been able to find a, a, a reasonable explanation. What they said was that the, the, the data was tainted because it reflected more the religious beliefs of the people rather than their scientific knowledge or attitudes. But that's just not uh, – that doesn't seem to me like a legitimate explanation because they actually explained very nicely in the original report, which has now been leaked, by the way. We all know about this because the, the part that they <laughs> yanked out got leaked. Now it's getting even more attention than if they just left it in there and buried oh, it in the boy. middle of the report. So uh, <laughs> the deleted section says uh, – I'll read you part of it. In international comparisons, U.S. scores on two science knowledge questions are considerably lower than those in almost all other countries where the questions have been asked. Americans were less likely to answer true to the following scientific knowledge questions. Human beings, as we know them today, developed from earlier species of animals. And the second one was the universe began with a huge explosion. Yeah, but um, to, the, to their credit, that second one is a really crappy – yeah, it was a bad question, but that's not what they question. said. They, what, they didn't say we should have worded the question better. It was like from a scientific point of view. They said that – well, they also asked – Well, they were saying Americans were less likely to answer true to that question. The universe began with a huge explosion. It's, that's a poor, it's a poorly worded question, so I think we mm -hmm. can throw that one out, honestly. But human beings, as we know them today, developed from earlier species of animals. That's a perfectly good statement that I can that yeah it's ridiculous that Americans yeah. are less likely to answer true to they that they use the word huge explosion to replace big bang right because I don't think they, I think people have this you know they've heard big bang right but that's the thing so, big bang is so, like a that, you know isn't so, a descriptive term it's well, a, they're, they're probably recognizing you know oh I've heard that before that must be true right but if they but if they if you tell them huge explosion they don't necessarily think big bang mm -hmm. that's I, that's my guess as to why they worded it that way. Mm, Whatever, they, they took it out. But even <laughs> if, you, if you go back to the first one, <laughs> only 45% of Americans responded yes to American, human beings ha have developed from earlier species compared to 78% in Japan, 70% in Europe, 69% oh, in China. Man. However, if they switch mm. the question around and they say, according to the theory of evolution, human beings as we know them today develop from earlier species of animals, Ooh. the number jumps up into the 60s. It goes, it goes up about... A lot higher. Still, Which is still low. It's still low, but <laughs> it was yeah. substantially higher. So they concluded from that that... That Americans he, are stupid. 
Well, no, that they, they know what the theory of evolution is, and they know what it says. They just don't believe it because of their religious beliefs, so they don't accept it. And if you separate out what they know from what they believe, you get more reasonable numbers. So why not just say that and include it in the report? Why take the whole thing out? It made no sense. It makes it look like they're trying to hide something yeah. that's embarrassing. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. The Obama administration complained that they signed off on the original version of the report that had the section in there, and then the uh, National Science Board yanked it before they made it public. So they basically distanced themselves from that move. Can you imagine that Terrible. working that way with any other situation? Like, uh, question one, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, true or false? Question two, according to the Pythagorean theorem, A squared or, plus B yeah. squared equals <laughs> C squared. You know, I mean, are there a bunch of people out there who would say, well, I don't believe that that's true, but I yeah. understand <laughs> that that's per- Pythagorean. Or according to mathematicians. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Mathematicians. Mathematicians. Now, there was also a recent editorial in Nature that also came out um, that concluded – the editorial was basically about the fact that most Americans are getting most of their science education Mm. outside of school. They're not getting it in in the classroom. They're getting it from so-called informal science education. You know where they're getting it from? I'll tell you where they're getting it from. Insane Clown Posse. Is that right? Oh, That's God. right. I'm taking over this discussion. You're trying to, to talk about. Wow. But hang on. Let me, can I make one point before we go on to the Insane Clown Posse? <laughs> one point, briefly, before I, I bust a cap. They're getting it from zoos, museums, and those kind of informal sources, but also from the SGU baby. They're getting it from podcasts and blogs. Yep. Awesome. And increasingly so. And that's not that's awesome why, if they're still screwing things up. That's why we're doing what we're doing. <laughs> well, but you know what? There were slight improvements eh. in, in, in attitudes towards science. And, and America actually is still is actually better than all these other countries in terms of our attitudes towards science and technology. We are much more optimistic and positive about the role of science and technology and the potential for it, which is interesting. But, but anyway, I just wanted, wanted to put that plug in for well, you know informal not- science education. You know who's not positive about science? Who's that? Insane, Insane clown. clown <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so who are these clowns? Okay, I'm so who glad are you insane asked. Posses. Insane clown. You, you, you fellows probably don't know because you're not young and cool like me. But I think they're wrestlers. I know all God. about it, Rebecca. <laughs> they are such a but joke. But they kind of look like wrestlers. And the song you're you're about to reference is is embarrassing. They're um, they're men in their mid to late thirties who wear um, clown like grease paint on their faces, um, and they Uh smear it right over their goatees. Um, (laughs) They don't mind, and then they they rap and you know that's that's like the Joker. (laughs) That's the quickie version for those who haven't heard of ICP as the cool kids know them, Um, and for those of you who already knew about ICP but are just astonished to find that they're still alive and making music and having fans Uh, yes it's true they've just come out with a new song and video and it's I think one of the greatest things I've ever seen you see uh, Insane Clown Posse well known for having thuggish fans that are known as juggalos and juggalettes. I've learned an awful lot about Insane Clown Posse in the last week, by the way. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and and so these people um, are they tend to be um, yeah just a bit thuggish and they're they're kind of classified as gangs in places but I think for the most part they're just you know kind of high school kids that probably don't have a lot of friends and you know how it is you listen to crappy music and then you bond with other people like listen the, to the same goth crappy. crowd or something right no they're not as cool as goths <laughs> did i just say that yes i did well do um, they dress up as clowns they do they dress up like like insane clowns so there's a there's an insane clown click in in the young not, not a click, clown click. <laughs> not a click mentally disturbed harlequin clicks <laughs> <laughs> so insane clown posse's newest video um is all about miracles <laughs> and it's basically these uh-huh. two clowns um doing their raps in front of um like a green screen with swirling colors and rainbows and uh when i saw it i thought that's odd um and i did a bit of research and i discovered that insane clown posse in late 2009 they came out with an album in which they um admitted that they were in fact undercover christians like evangelical christians and they were attempting to speak the language of the kids and they'd uh, done it so well that they fooled everyone including their own fans um, into thinking that they were hardcore like I'm a you know hit you in the face with a machete kind of thing um, but then they're like remember all that stuff we were talking about we fooled you God yay <laughs> and so now they've come out mm. with this ridiculous rap and you really have to hear it to believe it but um because the the whole song is about um, miracles, and they go through and they list all the miracles they see every day. Um, and some of those miracles include hot lava, snow, rain, fog, long neck giraffes, and pet cats and dogs, the birth of his kids, um, he's seen shit that'll shock your eyelids, FYI, the sun and the moon, and even Mars, the Milky Way, and shooting stars, UFOs, <laughs> rivers, Niagara Falls, pyramids, rainbows after it rains. Uh, there's enough miracles here to blow your brains. And then they say uh, this great line, I fed a fish to a pelican at Frisco Bay. It tried to eat my cell phone. He ran away. I'm not really sure how that fits in with the other things, but yeah. Um, then they go on and they say, water, fire, air, and dirt. And magnets, how do they work? I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all mother lying and getting me pissed. <laughs> this nice. is why this is why the nation's youth doesn't know science. <laughs> That's my theory. <laughs> because insane, of the insane clown posse. Because of the insane clowns. Because of the undercover evangelical clowns trying to lure uh. them away from science and into their crazy clown posse cult. So. Well, I think they got the insane part right. Um. <laughs> well, plus, they've got a low uh, miracle um, tolerance. They fog? Really do. Fog? <laughs> <laughs> well, they live, in, they live in Frisco, Bob, you know? Well, I got, the funny thing is I posted about this video on Skeptic, and uh, some juggalos signed up to respond, and one of them was arguing with me and saying that, um, you know, rainbows really are miracles. And I explained that they were, in fact, you know, just an optical phenomenon involving light reflecting off the back of raindrops. 
And um, she said, well, if you think you're so smart, you can explain rainbows, but you can't make them. And he said, well, yeah, actually, I can. You just get a hose and some sunlight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, doggy. And, oh, and then... That reminds me of the rainbow lady. Yeah, 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 yeah the same rainbow it, lady figured that there's out. There's chemicals in the water now, and that's <laughs> right. why we have extra rainbow activity. That right. was like if one I'm of the first scientific explanations ever was rainbows. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that's right. One of the skeptic commenters pointed out that if it weren't for the magnets that the insane clown posse doesn't know how right. they work, um, the if it weren't for those magnets, then we wouldn't be able to hear their insipid rap uh, because they would have nothing, no, no microphones and no recording equipment that's and no right. electricity, really. So. That's right. Go, go knock some rocks together, will you? Well, how are they defining the word miracle? I mean, do you think that they mean it's unexplainable? It's I know they mean it's unexplainable because that's exactly what they say in their power. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, rap. It was a very, you know, anti-science and pro, just look around you at all the miracles and how could all of this have come to be if it weren't it was very, for... Very Kirk know. Cameron, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's cool to be stupid. Mm-hmm. It's cool to not question things. It's cool to to dislike science and and knowledge. And it's it's cool to uh, appreciate all the things that are going around you in in as a, in as base a way as you possibly can. According to these clowns, you're yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you guys, it could it could be worse. You, got it. you know, they 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 could be covering up for priests who you know defrocked little boys from. 20, 30 years ago. That's true. Did you guys hear about uh, Hitchens and uh, Dawkins, what they're trying to do? Hear about it. I'm currently embroiled (laughs) in a nightmare (laughs) debate because I'm ruining skepticism by supporting it. Yeah, you're ripping the skeptical community in twain. Well done, Rebecca. I am. Uh, (laughs) Well, what is that? Well, okay. (laughs) We should briefly mention it because it's a happening. Um, There was a terrible headline that appeared um, Sunday saying... Um, something along the lines of Richard Dawkins, I will arrest the Pope. You know, it, it's it was laughable because I mean Richard Dawkins isn't personally going to run up to the Pope mobile and knock it over and drag the Pope out and handcuff him. Citizens arrest. Um, <laughs> what, Get a what, few million hits on YouTube to see that. <laughs> what, what Dawkins clarified he was doing um, was supporting an effort that's already underway. He and Hitchens are supporting an effort that's underway uh, by actual human rights lawyers to uh, who are looking into um, whether or not the Pope has violated human rights by um, by supporting the sort of worldwide conspiracy to protect. Uh, Sex, sex abusing yeah. pope, uh, sex abusing priest. Priests. Yes. Um, so yeah, and it's it's an interesting case because there are there's precedent to back them up, and also you know they there there's a substantial amount of evidence right now that shows that the pope uh, not only ignored calls for help from uh, people dealing with pedophile priests, but also specifically uh, went out of his way to protect the church rather than the victims by moving priests around to other parishes instead of prosecuting them, turning them over to authorities. So I, I think it's very interesting, and I'm certainly supportive of the effort and will continue updating it on Skeptic, although I should mention that there are a few people who are, think that because Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens is, are involved and because it's the Pope as opposed to, say, Sai Baba, um, that that makes it bad for skepticism because it should be an atheist issue. I think that it's a 
humanist issue. There's a human rights issue. I don't really care which label I'm wearing at the time. Um, I think it's an important issue that we should pay attention to and stand behind. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant that he's the Pope just because there, that station should have a much greater understanding of uh, of what it means to be good and evil. And, and I happen to think that pedophilia is is one of the most evil things that a person can do. I mean, there's like murder and then there's pedophilia in my book that that's definitely next in line right but the you know this gets once again to the issue of what's the scope of the skeptical movement and i think rebecca your point is well taken that you know there there isn't one monolithic skeptical movement as much as maybe some of us would like there to be there just isn't and it blends seamlessly into very closely allied movements like humanism and atheism and there's a lot of people who are are wearing multiple hats if you will and which you know again our approach is that's fine you know do you know if, if hitchens and dawkins you know feel powerfully about this issue who cares what label they're doing it under? They're not even doing it under a label. A label. They're doing it as individuals because this is important to them. Right. And, sa- and same thing with you. And to the notion that this is going to hurt, quote unquote, hurt the skeptical movement, I think is a bit misguided. I agree. I'm glad to hear you say that because that's my thought exactly. Evan. Hello. It's time for Who's That Noisy? Oh, it is. I just just looking at the clock myself. So, All right. Well, let's play last week's Noisy. Interesting, huh? So what kind of animal was that? That was a cheetah. Really? A cheetah? <laughs> yes, it was. And a, a male cheetah. Ah. Specifically. That's the specific bark they use to call out to their mates. Yeah. And that does not sound like a cat noise at all to me. No, it doesn't. If you listen closely, you can kind of hear this low sort of breathing. This, You know, it's obviously, you know... I almost thought that someone would get it based on, you know, that that kind of underlying breathing noise that's going that on. That was a bigger that. animal, right? Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, animals do make lots of different noises, and and we tend to associate them with like the one primary noise that they make. But re- in reality, they have lots of no- they often have lots of noises that they make. Lots and lots. Did of anybody lots of get it? No. Wow. Oh wow, that doesn't Ooh. happen very often. And that noise was submitted to us by Evil Eye. From the, our friend from the oh, message boards. Good, good job, Evil. Good one. So well done. It was a very good one. You stumped us all. Have you got something equally interesting for this week, Evan? I do, in fact. How did you know? Okay, here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? Is it the whole thing, or is the chirping in the background, or is the crunchy noise in the foreground? What is it, the bit that we're trying to identify, or the you whole know, thing? Um, it, to the best of my knowledge, the, this was submitted by a listener as well, and it's the whole. All the noises are part of the puzzle. Hmm. That's tough. That's tough. That's a weird one. Well, that's that a weird, is tough. That's a that's weird, weird one. It's, fa- it's fascinating. Thank you, Evan. We have time for just one email. This one comes from Caitlin. And she writes, love the show. Jay, you're awesome. 
Just wanted to send you guys a laugh. It's called Color Therapy and invokes everything from chakras to dowsing. It brought up an interesting thought for me. I've always been told that red makes you hungry, blue makes you tired, etc. Do you know if any of this is true? I've tried to find out, but it's hard to wade through all the crap on the Internet. Anyway, thanks for the wonderful show you put out. It does many people the world of good. So, Jay, since she singled you out, can you tell us about color therapy? <laughs> color therapy. This is something that I actually have a history with. This was one of my first favorite pseudosciences, uh, just just because of the idea of how preposterous it is. And, and uh, out of all the sites that I've read about it, it is one of the uh, the most ridiculous. Uh, it's definitely not as ridiculous as homeopathy, but they actually have some things in common. But real quick about this particular site that the emailer uh, mentioned, and I really appreciate the uh, Jay's awesome comment. Um, I pulled out some choice quotes from this particular site of Wu, and here are a few of them. The use of color as a therapy is a true, holistic, non-invasive, and powerful therapy which dates back thousands of years. Evidence of this can be found in ancient texts from India, China, and Egypt, which somehow proves that it works. Right. Argument from antiquity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'll read these, and then you guys can shout out the logical fallacies. Color is simply light of varying wavelengths and, as such, is a form of energy that is used in color therapy. So there's the baseline idea of what it is. And they go on, this light energy affects all living cells. As we all know, without light, all living things are affected. That's not true. Yeah. Used in the right way, these different, frequency of, uh, these different frequencies of light, i.e. color, can have a profound and healing effect on all creation, human or otherwise. It's a non sequitur. So basically they're saying light affects living stuff in ways, and therefore our light is healing. You know, that's basically yep. the logic that they're using. It is a well-known, well-known scientific fact that everything has a vibration. That is to say yep. that all things have their own vibration frequency, yep. and that includes us. It's a well-known scientific fact. Yeah, everything yep. vibrates <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Constant vibration. Vibration. Here's where they make some claims now. Love Color it. therapy can be used for any problem, whether physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, for specific problems as well as an overall relaxation therapy. It's good Holy for what Jesus. Wow, good for anything. It can do everything. It can. Color therapy can be used safely and effectively, either alone or alongside any other therapy, whether complementary or orthodox medicine, for adults, children, babies, and non-human animals alike. For everything. I mean, it's brilliant marketing, right? I mean, you have a... It is... I mean, it's light, so it is low risk, right? And yeah. it's good for everything and for everybody and even animals. So you yeah. maximize your market with yeah. a completely you know, risk-free treatment. You make some... New age, soundy, you know, completely vague, almost random uh, pseudoscientific noise. You know, vibrations and energy, you know. <laughs> there you go. You put Harmonies. up a website and just let the money start rolling in. I, I, I literally have ten times more than what I'm reading here, and I'm just looking through yeah. these. But know, the thing is, this is all... the kind of thing you can make this up. This is not even terribly interesting or uh, imaginative, right? This, yeah. is, this is fairly boilerplate new age woo they're not even trying let me read one more and then i'll tell you about one of the products that they have oh are okay. we sure this is not parody right are we, have we it's not no i checked okay. and there's a full-blown store on there it's a very very uh deep website that has a ton of stuff to buy and all this crap so anyway here we go this wonderful planet does not contain all the beautiful colors of the rainbow without reason nature and its colors are not simply here by chance everything in nature is here for a purpose color is no exception mm-hmm 
They sell dowsing crystals on the site. Ooh. They sell home light therapy for people. Uh-huh. They they sell so much stuff on here. I was very impressed with how complete the store was. My impression of, of this site and sites like it is that these people have utter contempt for their customers. That's that's the impression that I get. My opinion that that just th- their intelligence. Th- yeah, this is this is the way a con artist behaves towards a mark with utter contempt. Basically, you're stupid. Give me money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> So they, they talk about something I, I haven't I haven't heard referred to in this way, but they call it solarized water, which is water affected <laughs> by something. Uh, that's wonderful. That's good. You mean okay? You got to give me this. It's, it's called warm water. Yes, <laughs> it's so solarized. Uh, this site definitely is a, is an awesome example of something that's completely made up and not even not written well. It, it's patronizing in a way. Yeah. You know, it's pitched at like it's very much pitched at a very, very simple-minded person. Yeah, you're still um, a brown reader. Exactly. Joining us now is Seth Shostak. Seth, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Uh, always a pleasure, Steve. And Doctor Shostak is the senior astronomer at. The SETI Institute, and we've had him on the show a couple of times before to talk about the search for for extraterrestrial intelligence. And he was kind enough to come on tonight at short notice to talk about the fact that it is the 50th anniversary, or it was on April 8th, of using radio astronomy to search for extraterrestrials. Isn't that right? 40th anniversary. Uh, 50th, actually. 50. 50. No, I was right. 50. <laughs> I heard it. I, I wait, wait. I'll tell you why I said that. I actually heard it on the news, on the television, and it said forty years ago. And I and I said, well, I'm forty one, so I, that's why I remembered the guy said forty. So the TV was wrong. Uh, it just proves that you shouldn't believe everything you hear on the news. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <right>. Skeptical. <laughs> no, it was 1960. So do the math. It's 50 years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So how's it been going? Well, of course, uh, we, we've continued the search. It's it's intermittent. I think that uh, many uh, among the public have the impression that well, you know there are a lot of white lab coated scientists sitting around with earphones on their heads, uh, listening for ET all the time. Of course, it doesn't quite work that way because uh, up until very recently, we've always had to borrow somebody else's antenna, and uh, antennas, uh, being expensive, uh, useful research instruments, are not always available for our use. So it's been a very intermittent project in the last fifty. years. Years, but uh, we have done quite a bit of listening, and the game is changing. And not only that, but the game is getting quicker. So that's that's all improvement. So you, you mentioned that for a while you've uh, been borrowing others' radio telescopes, but now you have the Allen Telescope Array. That's your primary one that you're using now, right? That's correct, yes. For our radio searches, the Allen Telescope Array, located in the lovely Cascade Mountains of Northern California. And that's 100% dedicated to SETI? Well, it's not. It's This is a joint project with the University of California at Berkeley Radio Astronomy Lab. So those are people across the bay from us uh, who are interested in studying, you know, galaxies or nebulae within our own galaxies. The usual things that uh, I, I that sounds almost denigrating, usual. I don't mean to say usual. There's never anything usual about cutting edge research. But, you know, they're doing astronomy and they can use the instrument at the same time that we can use it for doing SETI researches because, you know, no matter what they point it at, there are always some stars in the foreground, if you will, that uh, will be interesting targets for us. But they're pointing the telescopes. 
usually they do. I mean, if we if we find something particularly interesting or we have a project in which, you know, we really can't live with them pointing the telescope, then, you know, we, we negotiate. So, you know, it's it's jointly used. But in most cases, yes, they would decide to, well, let's map uh, the Andromeda galaxy just to give uh, an example. And, and while they're doing that, and that might take, uh, they may spend hours doing that, maybe, maybe half an hour, an hour, a couple hours. In that time, we will be looking at the the stars and presumably nearby stars stars that are suspected of being the right type to have a, a planet sort of like the earth uh, in the foreground and we will be you know sifting through the cosmic static coming from those directions to see if we see any signal and and essentially then what you're doing is mainly providing a layer of uh, of analysis of the signal to to try to pull out anything that could be a candidate for an intelligent signal yeah exactly i mean the difference between our use of what's coming in the antennas and their use uh, is indeed in the, what's called the spectral uh, processing. In other words, you know, all this cosmic static is coming in, but we're looking for signals that are restricted to one spot on the dial, if you will, uh, you know, what's called a narrowband signal, because those are the kinds of signals that transmitters do make, and nature does not. Nature's not such a good engineer. Nature makes signals that are spread all over the dial. We might also be looking at different frequencies than they are. It turns out that it's possible for them to be uh, observing at one set of frequencies while we're at a completely different spot in the radio spectrum. So, I- indeed, it may not even be the same cosmic static. Mm-hmm. Seth, I have, I have a couple of questions to ask you, but I want to start with the dumbest one, okay? Sure. Have you ever pranked any of your co-workers by pretending that a signal came in ha, I, I, I probably wouldn't be talking to you if I had <laughs> <laughs> but aren't you tempted well I don't think I'm very good at it actually there have been pranks and and some of those pranks in the past it was one in uh, at the end of the 1990s I believe it was uh, where uh, some some guy put on a website in in the UK in Britain uh, the claim that he had uh, surreptitiously Used an antenna that his uh, high-tech employer had in its, uh, you know, somewhere in its lot behind the factory, and he had used it at night and, and found a signal coming from a particular star system in the Milky Way, and he was claiming that, well, here, this amateur, he had done it, and he was so convincing that some uh, radio astronomers in Australia actually took time to, you know, follow up with a big antenna to to prove whether he was right or not. It was all a hoax. But that is the reason why you wouldn't do that kind of prank, right? Because if you take it past a certain point, that's going that's to bring money. in, yeah. Then then there's going to be other you know radio astronomers around the world, re, you know, pointing their telescopes to verify whatever signal you're claiming. So that they they would probably be upset if they found that it was all a prank. Well, I, I'm sure they would be. And it, to be honest, it's not terribly easy to to pull a convincing prank because the system is set up in such a way that it. Yeah, I, I won't. I wouldn't dare to say that it's prank proof. <laughs> prank proof. <laughs> I couldn't even say it. You see? Uh, but but uh, but but I. You know, it's not easy. You'd have to get into the software, or the hardware here, and and mess it up. But I I will say that it might be somewhat beneficial to occasionally have uh, such a prank. We we leave that to the Stanford undergrads here. Uh, see if they can do it. I, I'm always, uh, you know, sympathetic to such pranks because they do sort of torture test the system. Always a good idea. Mm-hmm. Seth, how much has things changed in the past 20 years technology-wise? Well, in the past 20 years? Well, if, if you plot up some 
index, if you will, of the speed of our search, right? Even going all the way back to Frank Drake's uh, uh, original search in 1960, which I uh, hurried to point out was 50 years ago. (laughs) If you you plot up the speed of the search, you find out that, you know, it isn't like Jodie Foster sitting around day after day with earphones on. The search is speeding up. Uh, by any reasonable measure, and it's speeding up according to what's called Moore's Law, which is an economic law here in the Silicon Valley that says that every 18 months, the speed of the computer you can buy for any given price point doubles. So the speed of SETI has been doubling on average every 18 months as well. And so that means whatever you're doing you know, this year and the next will dwarf all the data you've collected in the past 50 years. And that is because pretty much because of computer power. Right, exactly. That's the, lim- that's the limiting factor. That's the technology yeah. that's driving what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, it's computer power. I mean, there, you you can see down the road there will come a time when the limit will be you know how many antennas you can build. But at the moment, it's still digital processing, and that that's probably going to remain the limiting factor for the next couple of decades. So, but it, you know, if you, if we did go back 50 years and you we we saw this on a chart, you know how fast how fast are we improving? Now, you said it would doubles every year. How much we can process? Yeah, every 18 months. Might be a year for you. It seems that way. But it's, yeah, every 18 months it doubles. Oh, look, you know this. You you, you know that this is a, a law of computers. It's, by the way, it's not a technology development. It isn't because these guys are sitting around making faster computer chips all the time. They do that because they want you to replace your computer uh, on about the same time scale as you replace your car. You know, it's another expensive purchase. But unlike your car, uh, it doesn't, you know, get destroyed by the, Calif- the, the lack of maintenance on California roads. So, yeah. Know. So your computer still looks good after five years. Your car doesn't. Uh, so, uh, you know, they need an incentive to get you to replace your computer. And what they do is they keep doubling the, the speed so that after five years, your computer is now, you know, five or seven times slower than the latest models. And you don't get any respect at cocktail parties. <laughs> now, actually, you know, Bob, you remember you and I had this conversation years ago about how much is Moore's Law driven by the actual pace of technological development and computer chip design, and how much of it is basically an artifact of the market, that they're timing their development so that Moore's Law is completely a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it seems like that's – is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Now, you know, yeah. mind you, I don't make chips, and maybe they're just doing it for the heck of it. But, you know, it gets, it gets more and more expensive to make faster chips. You know that. And we're, you know, getting to the point where making little smaller and smaller transistors isn't going to work anymore because they're just, you know, they're so small that you don't have enough electrons in the transistors to really do anything anymore. So you have to switch the paradigm, as they love right. to say here in the Silicon Valley, and go to something like quantum computing and so forth. But, you know, uh, they're well aware of this. Or three-dimensional chips or optic computing or something yeah, else. Or, right. Or, right, having parallel processors, you know, multi-core processors, they're already going in that direction. Yeah. Seth, would it help a lot if we you had the money to put something in outer space? Uh, it might help me personally, you know, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of my popularity in social circle, circles. I, I don't think that it would help uh, SETI to put something in orbit. People uh, suggest this to me fairly frequently. They say, well, you know, why don't you just put these antennas up in, uh, up in orbit? Uh, I think a lot of them are, are of the opinion that that will get us closer to the aliens. But as you know, most things that are in orbit are in low Earth orbit, which is only, you know, 200 miles up. 
getting a little, you know, 200 miles closer to the aliens obviously doesn't help you anything. But, but they're thinking, well, maybe you could get away from the interference here on Earth, which is a very big problem because, you know, you pick up signals all the time. The trouble is they're due to, uh, you know, radar sets down at the local airport and whatever. But a lot of them are due to telecommunications satellites. So if you put everything up into space, you'd probably get more interference rather than less. Huh, the only huh. exception to that would be if you could move the whole experiment to the backside of the moon. Right. Mm. You know, because there you really are shielded from all the interference from Earth. The trouble is it's expensive and the cuisine isn't very good. Yeah. And plus, we're not sure if there's any aliens there right now anyway. Oh, you mean on the backside of the moon? Yeah, we've got to be careful. <laughs> oh, you mean that there might be, that uh, they would interfere <laughs> with our equipment. Well, maybe we could hire them to maintain it. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the atmosphere, just to complete that thought, the atmosphere is not a problem, right? Because it's fairly transparent to radio waves. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it depends on the frequency, of course. When you go to very high frequency, uh, it, it is a problem. It begins to uh, be okay. the water vapor in the atmosphere be begins to be a problem. But that's at mostly at millimeter wavelengths. We tend to operate at centimeter wavelengths. And at those frequencies, those wavelengths, uh, the atmosphere is pretty transparent, pretty stable. Right. But the far side of the moon would be cool. Well, it would be very cool, particularly at night. Yes. 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 Right. <laughs> Seth, under, under absolute perfect conditions, you know, if the best thing could possibly happen for you, what would it be? Well, in terms of SETI, uh, yeah. probably yeah. the first priority would be get it, to uh, get the money, to raise the money to complete this instrument that we've got going here, this Allen Telescope Array, because, uh, you know, it's at 42 antennas now. And 42 is pretty good, but, you know, really, you want it at least 200 antennas, and the design goal is 350 antennas. And, and at that point, not only is it a world-class radio telescope, I mean, it would be extraordinarily useful for all sorts of uh, very interesting research in astronomy, but it would also allow us to, within two dozen years, uh, scan at least a million nearby star systems for signals. And frankly, I think that uh, a million may be the right number to uh, ensure success. At, at this point, we've looked at far fewer than that. We've looked at fewer than a thousand star systems. So to go from, you know, 750, 800 star systems to a million is the kind of step I think we need to take if we want to uh, book success. Why are 200? Uh, why is that a magic number for you guys? Well, with 200, it, it, this has to do with the optics of these systems. Uh, you, you know, you're, what you're trying to do, and, and mostly has to do with, for the radio astronomers, being able to make good radio pictures of the sky. Uh, the way you make a good picture is to have a, you know, a, a big lens, for example, if you're talking about photography. But at radio wavelengths, uh, a lens that would have, would be able to see the kind of detail that you can see with your eye or with a, a camera lens, that would be a, that would be a radio antenna miles across. You can't build that. That's too expensive. But what you can do is break it up into lots of little antennas and then combine them in the right way with the right mathematics to simulate this very big lens. So from the standpoint of the radio astronomers, they want lots and lots of antennas because it makes for better pictures. From the standpoint of SETI, you want lots of antennas because it allows you to find far weaker signals, and that's important. Right now you have 42 antennas? Right now we're at 42 antennas. That's right. But, but, but Seth, that's the, that's the answer to the life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, isn't that coincidental? I, 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 do you think we ought to stop building it? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a certain symmetry to that number. You know? <laughs> yeah, but that, you know, it took an awful lot of time to, to come up with that number, and that's been true for us, too. Yeah, right. yeah, you don't have five million years. 
Seth, so then the next step, though, as great as that would be to have hundreds of them, the next uh, the next big step, I think, would be to have probes, say, at either end of Earth's orbit. I mean, can you imagine, you know, 190 million uh, mile wide, you know, baseline for uh, for some some probes? Would that, I mean, how much better would that be? Is that just too cost prohibitive, or is that something that we might see in 10 or 20 years? Well, the problem is you you can do that. In fact, people do that in astronomy in some sense all the time. That That's how they measured the distances to stars, actually, you know, just yeah. doing the triangulation there and so forth. Uh, that kind of very long baseline is of interest to radio astronomers. The problem is you need to record the data. Uh, you have to correlate the data. There, there's some problems there, I would say, uh, in terms of using it for radio astronomy. But in terms of SETI, I don't think it's terribly interesting because in the case of SETI, the the idea is not to make a map of ET's antenna farm. You you don't care about seeing detail. All you want to do is pick up the signal, right? It's just like driving around in your car. Your car antenna is really kind of non-directional. It doesn't tell you very much about even which direction your favorite country and western station is located. It doesn't matter. You don't right. care. You just want to hear the music. And, you know, the same is true for SETI. So we're not so interested in big baselines. What we want to do is have a big bucket because a big bucket might find a signal that's, you know, too weak for a small bucket. Yeah, so you don't want resolution, you want sensitivity. Is that accurate? Right. You've got okay. it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Seth, before when I asked, like, what's the best thing that could happen, I wanted to know what, if you were to hear a signal, you know, what, what do you think? Like, when you guys are, are hanging around in the office, like, just joking around and stuff, and, you, you know, you, somebody says, you know, man, if only we got a signal, and, like, what, what do you think, what's the best kind of signal you can get? Like, give us, like, the flavor of what it would be like to be in the room when, like, the best case thing happens for what you're looking for. So what's your wet dream? That's what you're asking, right, yeah. Jay? Well, I, you know, is that appropriate for, you know, uh, family audiences? <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just say that we've, we've be had... for a personal collection. <laughs> we, we've had some experience with that because a, a dozen years ago, we picked up a signal. Uh, actually, I described this in a book I, I wrote last year. And, and I, st- I start off the book with this because it's kind of interesting to see exactly what does happen if you think you've picked up a signal. And for most of the day, we thought we had picked up a signal. Uh, you know, nobody went to bed. We just sat here looking at the computer screens all night long. Nobody went out to the local fast food pr- uh, place to, to pick up a meal. And uh, it was very nerve-wracking, actually, because, you know, you realize that everything you'd scheduled for the next three months, you could just throw that out the window. And uh, yeah. that's very disruptive right there. But, uh, of course, it's also very exciting. And the other thing was that I, you know, I looked around to see if uh, Men in Black would show up or, you know, at least it'd be a call from some government agency or another. The only call I got was from the New York Times science yeah. uh, science reporters, and they, and they found it interesting. They wanted to know about it. It turned out to be a false alarm. But uh, it, it was a very good test, if you will, of the system to see what would happen if we, we picked up a signal, at least for the first day. Yeah, it was a kind of a dry run. You're not going to get a signal where you could even begin to hope to interpret what it is. Like the, the, first, you know, the first moments or the first few days, if a real signal was happening, if the real thing was going on, you were getting a real confirmed signal from a very, very far away point in outer space, you know – it's not going to be like you're going to hear anything or see anything. You're just seeing what the signal is, right? There could be a repeat. You know, you got to confirm. Like, is it is it natural or is it or is it artificial? That's what the first order of business. Yeah, I think what, what Jay's saying. Let's say you confirm it's not natural. You confirm it's extraterrestrial. It's not. There's not. It's not a terrestrial source. It's not a communication satellite. It's coming from light years away, and it, there's no question that it's intelligent. 
but yet yeah. you have absolutely no idea what the information content. Where do you even begin at that point? Yeah. Well, prime numbers. Yeah, <laughs> prime numbers. That's right. If you're a Dan Brown fan, maybe the Fibonacci. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, but but really, it isn't. Look, we're, we're what we do is we integrate this signal. Now, that sounds like some sort of civil rights action, but in fact, what that means is that we average the incoming static for, you know, typically minutes. Typically minutes. So you, and we do that for the same reason that when you're making a, a photograph at night, you tend to make a time exposure, right? You know, just to, yeah. right? So that the, the very faint things can be seen. So we do the same thing. We average the incoming static for, you know, at least seconds and usually minutes, which means that the message, which after all is very fast. I mean, you know, a television signal, just a conventional television signal, changes five million times a second, and a high-definition television signal changes uh, six times faster than that. So all that information is thrown away. So the fact that the aliens are sending you, you know, maybe the cure for death, or who knows what they're sending you, but, you know, th that all goes away. All you're trying to do is maximize your sensitivity so that you find out that they're on the air. And if you do that, if you succeed in doing that, then, of course, you know, you could probably get the money to build a very much larger instrument you would need to uh, make those short exposures and find the message. And, and at that point, of course, maybe everything changes. So wow. you're saying that if you, if you picked up a signal, we don't even have the equipment to, to read it at this point in time? We would have to actually build a new radio telescope to interpret the signal? Yeah, probably. I mean, it depends. I mean, there's some uh, SETI experiments like what's called optical SETI where you're looking for flashing mm -hmm. bits. Well, you might actually get the bits right away. But in general, in radio, no, you're not going to get the bits right away unless they're sending bits really slowly. Imagine, you know, typing out Morse code, dit, da, da. Yeah. You know, if it's that slow, you might get them. But, but it, you know, they're not going to do that. Come on. Yeah, I mean, Seth, if they're that slow, they're not building technology that fast either. They're definitely behind us. Yeah, well, if they, they're, well, if they're, if they're, well, I don't know if they're behind us, but if they're that slow, they are slow in another sense because nobody's going to expect you to have such a bandwidth limited system that they're going to, you know, it's going to take uh, millions of years to just uh, tell you uh, something about their planet and what they look like. 42. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be quick, actually. Right. Or they, they may have multiple layers and they may have a really slow signal in there. Um, just for the initial contact, maybe telling you how to get the more high-dense information. Exactly. I I'm sure that's true, that they would send a narrowband signal, which, after all, really a, a narrowband signal can't carry any information. Uh, you, that, uh, that's just a pointer. That's just yeah, to get yeah. your attention and say, hey, look, you know, build something bigger and look in this direction again, and you'll find a weak signal that has all the, uh, you know, our encyclopedia, our, you know, our Internet, whatever it is they, they feel we ought to know. At that point, is that when we would need the high resolution instead of the high the high sensitivity? Yeah, and it, it typically would have to be tens of thousands of times a larger instrument than whatever you needed to find it in the first place. Yeah, could be more. Seth, do you do you um, think that when when you found when you eventually find a signal, do you think that we will, within a reasonable amount of time, be able to divine any information from it? I, I'm not so sure. Usually I say, no, I don't think so. I think all we'll know is that, uh, you know, they're there. And, and that's one bit of information, but that's a very interesting bit, right, to, to know that. And, and so um, I, I'd be happy with that. Uh, I don't think that they're going to send an empty signal, that is to say a signal without any information on it. But even if we can, you know, build that bigger antenna and get all these bits and, 
you know, having people download them onto their hard drives and people spending their evenings trying to figure them out. You know, I'm not quite sure we could figure figure them out. I mean, you can imagine giving a television signal, high-definition tele- television signal to the Neanderthals, and, you know, they might puzzle over it for a while, but I, I don't know that they'd ever <laughs> figure it out. And we might be in the same position. So I'm not terribly sanguine that we'll be able to figure it out. But on the other hand, Who's to say? Maybe the al- these aliens, you know, have gotten a grant from their government to educate other societies, and so they'll make it easy for us by sending lots of pictures or something like that. What would you send? What would be the right signal to send? Yeah, there are people here who sit around and, and make a modest living worrying about that sort of thing. We, we in general, don't send very much. Uh, but what I would send, if I had the chance to, to deliberately send something from Earth, I would send uh, the Internet servers of Google which actually are not very far away from where I'm sitting here, uh, I would send them the entire Internet because, because after all, it's got you know just about anything they'd want to know, but it's also very, very redundant. There, there are a lot of pictures, there's sounds, there's all sorts of stuff, but it's so redundant, there's so much rep, uh, repeated material that uh, the aliens might be able to figure it out, even though, unlike on television, they probably don't speak very good English. So that's what I would say. Somebody, somebody pointed out to me, they said, yeah, but there's a lot of porno on the Internet. Well, you know what? I don't think the aliens will mind. Right. Yeah. It, just it, na- it'd nature like, films. It'd be like National Geographic to them, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Seth, do you have any new projects you're, you're working on or anything new coming up? Well, in terms of – yeah, actually in terms of SETI, yes. Uh, we have a little observing project I'm doing with some guys from back east uh, in Baltimore at the Space Telescope Science Institute and around there. But it's, it's a project to look in the anti-sun direction. And you might wonder what the anti-sun direction is. It sounds like something my mom would, would my my mom might have to do. But it's it, it's you know there's a, uh, a NASA telescope up in space right now called Kepler, and Kepler is trying to find planets that are like the Earth. It, it would find them because the planets might occasionally get in front of their star, causing that star to get a little bit dimmer. Well, that's a very straightforward technique for finding planets, and maybe the aliens are doing it with us. And they found the Earth, and they've set up a transmitter to send a signal that reaches us just as we pass in front of the sun as seen from their home world. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of a nifty idea. So it tells you where to look and when. You look in the direction opposite the sun, and uh, you know, then, then you're passing in front of the sun as far as the, all the stars in that direction are concerned. So we're going to try doing that. I mean, it's a very limited experiment to you know, get started here, but we're going to try doing that in a month or so using the Allen Telescope Array. Awesome. What a great idea. So, Seth, congratulations on 50 years of SETI. I know you weren't there from the beginning. I was not. But you got the reins right now. Frank Drake is still, still involved? Hey, very much so. I, I spoke with Frank today. He's down the hall from me. Yeah, I don't have the reins. I got to be, be careful about that because my boss may take umbrage at that. But I, <laughs> <laughs> but I am I am uh, the senior astronomer, and you yeah. know what? That may, that may just be a reflection of my advanced age. <laughs> <laughs> Look, tell Frank we said hi. I will do that. <laughs> All right, thanks for your time, Seth. Always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. It's time for science or. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, three real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake arena. Is everyone ready for this week? I'm mm-hmm. so ready. All right, here we go. Right. Item number one, including the recent announcement of nine new exoplanets, 
more than half of all so-called hot Jupiters orbit their parent star significantly out of its plane of rotation, and six are fully retrograde, challenging current models of planetary formation. Item number two, a new report of the National Research Council indicates that the incorporation of genetically engineered crops into U.S. agriculture has had significant benefits for U.S. farmers and the environment. And item number three, feral ferret populations are on the rise in North American cities, such as New York City, where they have become popular as a means of rodent control. Aww. Ew. <laughs> what do you mean, ew? Do <laughs> uh, you ever smell a ferret? Ferrets aren't that smelly if you keep uh, them clean. they're pretty smelly. Okay, Rebecca, and your ferret-loving self, you can go first. <laughs> Look, don't brand me as a Just ferret, ferret lover. lover. She wears a ferret coat, but don't, don't hold that against her. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a bit at a loss here. So nine new exoplanets, of which more than half uh, are significantly out of its plane of rotations, uh, or their stars, out of their stars' plane of rotation, and six are fully retrograde. So to, to clarify, of, this is now, if you include the nine latest ones, if you look at all of the hot Jupiters, ah, not just okay. those nine... More than half of all hot Jupiters orbit out of plane, and six of those are retrograde. Right? Why? Retrograde <laughs> meaning that the orbit is reversed to the way that the star is spinning, I believe, right? Yes, right. Yeah, okay. Not retrograde in an astrological sense. I think that that is actually correct. That sounds, um, th- that sounds right. A new report indicates that the incorporation of genetically engineered crops into U.S. agricultural... That makes sense. Genetically engineered crops do have significant benefits. So that's suspicious in that it's so obvious. Um, (laughs) Because (laughs) genetic crops... uh, I mean, that's why we genetically engineer crops, for their benefits. Yeah. So the third one... (laughs) (laughs) This is all making sense in my head before it makes it to my mouth, I swear. Feral ferret populations are on the rise. Steve, where did you get this? Where are you reading this? That's what I need ferret to know. Ferret Weekly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ferret fancy. Um, <laughs> ferret parade. Like, first of all, I, I could see why feral ferret populations would be on the rise because little kids get them as pets and then you don't realize how much they stink because okay I was lying before they do stink Um, and then you throw them out on the street where they have to fend for themselves and they usually turn to drugs or insane clown posses or insane clown posse exactly Um, and that's why that's why feral ferrets don't uh, have an appreciation for science Uh, but why would they be a popular means of rodent control I mean, if they're feral... Aren't, aren't they rodents? Yeah, yeah. Good point. First of all, they are rodents. <laughs> so how can they control rodents? <laughs> so that's suspicious, too. So I'm, I'm, I'm between those two. Um, see, I know that Steve doesn't drink or do drugs. <laughs> it's not that Steve's not a creative type, but I can't see him sitting down and thinking up... Oh, I know. Feral ferrets. That's what I'll throw in as the fiction. No, that wouldn't be birthed from Steve's brain. Therefore, I believe that the second one is the fiction. Um, I believe that genetically engineered crops 
uh, have not had significant benefits, contrary to what even I believe. Okay. Okay. Well, Rebecca did a very good job. I mean, the first one I agree with about the hot Jupiters. The second one, uh, in regards to the genetically engineered crops, uh, I completely agree with that item. I think that um, they've been a tremendous help. I mean, the National Research Council, apparently from this news item, Steve did a study that showed that there's been a good benefit to it, and I, I think that that is true. Yeah, and this whole thing, you know, the, the the feral ferret population one is so weird to me. This whole that whole item that you know you get into that conundrum where you're like, well, Steve, you know, this, this is so crazy. Steve couldn't have possibly have made it up, and I and I actually think this one is wholesale made up. It's so crazy. There's enough ferrets running around New York City that they're whacking back the rat population. Well, I've owned ferrets and I've seen the rats in New York City, <laughs> and the rats are way bigger than ferrets and way scarier. So I think number three is is actually completely manufactured. Okay, Evan. All right, real quick. Uh, Hot Jupiters. I like that. I don't know why. That sounds very pleasant in my head. Hot Jupiters. Because they're hot. Because they're hot, baby. See, this one we have a problem with because, you know, aren't the laws of planetary motion and stuff, uh, you know, fixed? And are we not somehow... Oh, working against those laws if we go ahead and figure What's that, out, Evan? Figure out oh, that <laughs> if we But I thought there were also laws of like planetary formation and that unless you had something very radical happening, you planets turn a cer- certain way. If depending on how close they are to that star, they will be in its plane not significantly out. So I have a problem with that one, um, but I also think that uh, unfortunately it's probably true, which means what we have to go back to the drawing board on that and try to figure out the mess again. National Research Council, uh, genetically engineered crops, U.S. agriculture. Uh, benefit, yes, absolutely a benefit. And the last one, the feral ferret populations. Uh, I don't like that one. I think that one's the fiction. I don't... Uh, a popular means of rodent control. I've never, I've never heard that. I don't know. Ferrets chase down rats and stuff. Do they really? I've really never heard that. So I'm inclined to believe that one's fiction. Okay, Bob. Okay, um, hot Jupiters. Yeah, hot Jupiters. It makes sense that they, um, that they would orbit out of the plane of rotation. I wasn't aware of that, but it makes sense. I mean, because these these hot Jupiters, I think that the theory is that they're migrating in from the outskirts of the solar system close to the parent star, and I could see their orbit getting a little out of whack because of that uh, migration. Um, the retrograde um, motions, though, I wasn't aware of, of how significant that was. But uh, I like that. I like the idea of uh, planetary uh, formation, the theory of planetary formation, um, ever not not there are no real laws of planetary formation. It's really just a theory of how of how things really get going. So that one makes sense to me. The uh, de- genetically engineered crops, yeah, that's maybe it's too obvious, but yeah, I could see that they've had significant benefits uh, for the farmers and the environment. They're not paying as much for pesticides. The environment's better off because it's, you don't have pesticides leaking into uh, into the uh, the groundwater and all that stuff. So that kind of makes sense too, and. I'm agreeing with Jay and Evan that the three is the ferrets. Yeah, this does not make sense to me at all. Um, I mean, you, you got a rodent problem. Yeah, let's get a ferret. I mean, that's not the first thing that I think of when there's, there's a rodent control problem. And so what are they buying them and letting them loose? 
uh, to to help with the rats in the cities. And like Jay said, there's no way these ferrets are going to be um, making a, a dent. So I got to go with that as the fiction. All right. So you all agree in the hot Jupiters. That yes. including the recent announcement of nine new exoplanets, more than half of all so-called hot Jupiters orbit their planet, their parent star significantly out of its plane of rotation, and six are fully retrograde, challenging current models of planetary formation. And that one is science. So so far yes. so good. Uh, and yeah, this is interesting. You know, especially the retrograde ones because that's not supposed to happen according to, as Bob says, the current models or theories of planetary formation. And yeah, there's no violation of the laws, the, the laws of planetary motion. In fact, these planets would be following the laws of planetary motion, Kepler's three laws. But um, it's just a matter of how they get in that, in that orbit. Now, if they were forming sort of in place, condensing out of the, the swirling disk of material around an early star, they should be going roughly in the plane and direction that the star is spinning. That they're so significantly out of uh, out of that plane does mean that something else is happening. And Bob, I think you hit upon it that the, the, one of their their alternate theories is that maybe a lot of these hot Jupiters are migrating in from farther yeah. out, and that yeah. in so doing, it's cha- it's a chaotic process. They're swinging around other planets, and you know the ones that are surviving in a stable circular orbit are obviously the ones that we're finding. But uh, by the time they get there, they could have been. Their orbits can could have become extremely lopsided, even to the point of being retrograde. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that this could really have a significant negative effect on the Drake equation, right? If a lot of yeah. stellar systems have these hot Jupiters migrating in from the outside, small Earth-like planets simply are not going to survive, you know? They're, they're, they're going to get knocked out of their orbits in the process if that's how they're getting there. Depends how the migration works. Well, if you, if you have a you know, Jupiter migrating in so that it's closer to our sun than Mercury, along the way, forget about it. I mean, you know, the, the inner, small inner planets, they're going to get knocked off their orbits, right? Yeah, if, if, if it's a leisurely process, which I guess for it's probably it does take some time. It'll take hundreds of millions of years, and it's according to the, you know, the, the models that they're working on right now. It, it's hard to imagine it would get into that close orbit without being very disruptive. But if that's the case, I mean, it just may be possible that most solar systems have this happen, and they are yeah, that'd yeah, be they, bad. they don't have I mean, our solar system may be the exception in that it has an, uh, the inner solar system is free of any uh, hot Jupiters or Jovian planets, and then it's you know safe for the small rocky worlds. Uh, we'll see. I mean, we still, you know, we're, these are the kind of planets we can find. So we're, we have a significant bias in the kind of solar systems that mm. we're seeing right now. It's an artifact of the methods that we're using to find these planets. So we don't really know yet. Well, let's number go on to number two. A new report of the National Research Council indicates that the incorporation of genetically engineered crops into U.S. agriculture has had significant benefits for U.S. farmers and the environment. And this one is Science. Ah, Sorry, you fooled Rebecca. me with the <laughs> obvious. <laughs> right. <laughs> I your... can't believe you managed to make up fairness. <laughs> well, we'll get to that well, one in a second. I'm so, yeah, this one's a little obvious, but, I mean, it was very nice to read this report. They they you know, reviewed all the evidence. They said, yep, you know what? Farmers that are using genetically engineered crops are making more money, and they're, there's less soil erosion and less use erosion. of... Erosion? Why Erosion. 
because they're, they don't have to till the soil as much. Be- oh, okay. Because there's fewer weeds, because they, their weed and uh. pest control is better, because the crops are resistant, you know, to the to the weed and pest control, to, to the herbicides and pesticides. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So they they have to use less, better for the soil, fewer you know, herbicides get into the environment, into the groundwater. Um, the only their, their only caveat was to say that you know farmers can't rely upon the resistance. That you know, in these genetically modified crops, and they have ah. to, they have to use other methods, because the, otherwise the uh, the weeds will evolve resistance too, and then the that benefit of the genetically engineered crops will go away. So if they want to extend or prolong or preserve the benefits of these genetically engineered crops, they need to be using other methods too. So it's all about making it more sustainable. But for the time being, it's working quite dandy. All of this means that feral ferret populations are on the rise in North American cities, such as New York, where they have become popular as a means of rodent control, is fiction. But you know, there's a how fiction. There's a lot yeah. of interesting facts in here. First of all, ferrets absolutely hunt rats, pigeons, um, rabbits, larger rodents than than themselves. Um, actually, I don't think they're rodents. They're they're members of the weasel family. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. But uh, that, so they absolutely can hunt can hunt rats. No problem. You dirty weasel. In fact, yeah. part of this is based upon the news item that wild ferrets are spreading throughout the island of La Palma, where they are used for hunting. They're actually used as hunting animals, uh, mainly to hunt rabbits because there's a lot of rabbits there, and that on La Palma feral populations are getting a little bit out of control, which are threatening other species on the island. Now, I looked into the situation in North America. There are no feral ferret populations in North America. Uh, however, there is a huge pro-ferret lobby in this country, and, I, and I'm not sure how much of the information I was able to find was distorted. Um, the, the, who are trying because some actually New York City I specifically use because in New York City ferrets are against the law. You can't even own a ferret as a pet. In New York. Are City. you saying there's some sort of ferret conspiracy? Well, you might think that. Now, the ferrets that we have in, as pets in America are actually European ferrets, and they are not native to North America. There is a species of wild ferret in North America, the black-footed ferret, but they're on the brink of extinction. Because they were totally dependent upon prairie dogs, and when we decimated the prairie dog population, the, the black-footed ferret also uh, was decimated, and they're like one of the most endangered mammalian species in North America. But those are mm-hmm. wild. Feral means you know a domesticated animal that that then goes back out into the wild and establishes a population. It, you might think that you know like if you live in a building that has a rat problem, having some ferrets running around hunting down the, the rats. Necessarily doesn't be a bad help. Thing. No, because then you have <laughs> yeah. to bring in hawks to hunt the ferrets that get right. out of control. Yeah, then you need to get wolves to hunt the hawks. Exactly. And then t- and then lions and elephants. Then you're then you're back and then to rats. rats to get back rid of the to elephants. rats. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you're thinking of, Steve. That book, <laughs> <laughs> The Lion, the King. I was and the thinking cheese. of that Simpsons episode. Well, that was all based on <laughs> the Lion, the King, and the Cheese. Uh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, good job, guys. Rebecca, you should have more, f- you. have more faith in my imagination next time. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do, Steve. This quote was sent in by a listener named Jerrica Guyen. G-U-Y-N-N. Thank you, Jerrica. Here's the quote. And this is from 
Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common good, you can expect little help from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Richard Dawkins! Very nice quote. Arrester of Popes. Don't go spreading lies, Evan. So by the time you are all listening to this episode, we will be at Nexus in New York City. Enjoying ourselves thoroughly. Yes. And that episode will be next week's episode, the episode that we will record live at Nexus. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all there. Ditto. That's going to be great. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.